Amen. Well, I hope the book of Romans has been one-eighth as edifying to you as it has been to me already. And we're just getting started, but it's been deep, hasn't it? Romans is deep. It is a deep, deep well, and we really are just getting started. Remember the structure of Romans 1 to 11. Chapters 1 to 11 is largely doctrine. It's largely theology. He doesn't get practical until chapters 12 and following when it's going to get very practical. We'll get there next year. So we've got a a year of doctrine. And the Holy Spirit wants us to have this foundation of theology before we get about the practical business. Because if we just started with the how-tos, we would fizzle out. God the Spirit wants us to understand his plan and his purposes before we get to the how-tos. So where have we been? Just to keep the big picture before us. Romans 1, he introduces himself and he introduces his main point that the gospel is the power of God and in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Then he talks about the depravity of Gentiles in the rest of chapter 1. Then he talks the depravity of religious people and then specifically Jews in chapter 10. And then he sums up in chapter 3 that all of us, every one of us is under sin. And then he, he sums up that bad news section saying the law does not save the law does not justify it just closes our mouths and then he turns to the good news but now this righteousness that we so desperately need has been given to us in the gospel and that's chapter 321 and following then he uses Abraham and David as examples of justification by faith in chapters 4 1 to 8 and now this morning we're going to look at chapter 4 verses 9 to 16 it's page 885 if you're using one of our pew bibles Romans 4, 9 to 16, or 15, excuse me. Romans 4, 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So this morning, let's just consider two points, Abraham, Abraham, our father, and then Abraham, the heir of the world. And so first, Abraham, our father, looking in at chapter four, verse nine, he asks the question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. This blessing is both for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. In other words, it's for Jews and non-Jews. Jews 
and Gentiles. Circumcision was a big deal in the Bible. I know it can be strange for us to talk a lot about today, but back then it was extremely important. And if you're interested or need to know some of the particularities or some of the specifics of circumcision, just email me at cody.bingham at ssbaptist.org. We'll get you straightened out. But remember, way back in Genesis, after God called Abraham, he commanded him to be circumcised, and he commanded him to circumcise all of his offspring. Let me read those really pivotal verses. This is Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenants, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people as he has broken my covenant. So this was a really important sign of the covenant with Abraham. It was one of the main ways that Jews and Gentiles were separated. And if a Gentile wanted to join the people of God, it was the main entry right. Now, I don't know how they checked but if you weren't circumcised, you were not a legitimate member of the people of God under the old covenant. So when he says here, circumcised and uncircumcised, he means all people, Jews, Gentiles, Jews, non-Jews. This blessing is for all. It's not just for those who are ethnically from Abraham. It's for all. He's basically repeating what he said in chapter 3. Look at verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify, that is, declare in the right, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. We're all on the same ground. We saw that in chapter 3. All humanity is under sin, and we're all justified the same way, through faith, not by works. So this blessing is for all. What blessing? Well, it's the blessing he already mentioned in chapter 4, verse 7. Blessed, remember that word means happy. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. The blessing of the forgiveness of sins. Verse 8. I mean, second half of verse 7. And whose sins are covered. Verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The blessing is the fact that our sins aren't counted against us if we trust in Christ. Our sins are counted against him in our place as our substitute. Through faith, Abram's faith was counted as righteous. And remember last week, he quotes Genesis 15, 6 in, in chapter 4, verse 3. And he says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't righteous, but he believed God and it was reckoned. He was declared to be in the right through faith in God's promise. Look at verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. How then... Was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He was counted righteous before 
being circumcised. This is actually really important because what these false teachers, what these legalistic Jews of Paul's day were trying to do was say, no, you need to be circumcised. In other words, you need to add faith to works, just like Abraham. Paul's saying, wait a minute now, just read your Bible. Notice Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 16, Genesis 17, I just read, Abraham was circumcised. There's at least 14 years between the faith and the circumcision. Some rabbis said there was 29 years. So Abraham's saying, listen, don't listen to your, I mean, Paul's saying, don't listen to your tradition. Read your Bible. Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. He believed and was counted as righteous. Later on, he was circumcised. You notice how important that is, right? Because if he had been counted righteous by circumcision in 15, we would have a whole different gospel, which is no gospel at all. So the order matters. He's just saying, hey, read your Bible in a simple chronological sequence. It's a story. Go back. The order matters. Abraham was justified by faith. Then later on, he was circumcised. And again, this wasn't the standard view of the time. This was not the standard Jewish view at Paul's time. I read some. Let me read some more. A couple Jewish writings. Here's 1 Maccabees. A Jewish writing says this, Was not Abraham found faithful in temptation, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness? In other words, didn't Abraham work, obey, and it was counted as righteousness? Isn't that the opposite of what Genesis 15, 6 says? It says that he worked, and it was counted as righteousness. Paul, Moses, says he believed, and it was counted as righteousness. Or here's another Jewish writing from the Jubilees. For Abraham was perfect in all of his actions with the Lord and was pleasing through righteousness all of the days of his life, end quote. What had happened was Jewish tradition had distorted scripture and they had turned Abraham into a, a, a total saint without any flaws and then they said, we're of him. And so they became self-righteous and hypocritical and judgmental. They had distorted scripture and they had lost sight of grace. This is why Jesus had so much trouble, not with the pagans, not with the prostitutes and not with the tax collectors, but with who? The Jewish religious leaders. They had distorted scripture and become self-righteous. They had missed the gospel because they didn't read the Bible rightly. They read Genesis 17 into Genesis 15. And so this is a big deal. This is what we've been seeing in Romans 4. Again and again, this is what Galatians is all about. This is Philippians 3. This is Ephesians 2. Flip over and keep your Bible uh, to Romans. Look at Romans 9. Keep your finger in chapter 4, but we'll hit this again later. Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. It's not when you attain, it's when you're given. Verse 31, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They didn't pursue it well. They thought they could earn it, and you can. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They read the Bible wrong. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, 
They did not submit to God's righteousness because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who not works but believes. The Spirit through Paul here is jealous to guard the distinction between faith and works. The Spirit through Paul is jealous to preserve what grace is. In fact, if you're still there, flip over to Romans 11, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you try to mingle in works with grace, it ceases to be grace. And that's the problem that Paul's seeking to combat. Go back to Romans 4, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Remember, Abraham was a Gentile when God called him. And then he believes, and then he's circumcised as a sign and as a seal. It's the distinguishing mark of God's people in the Old Covenant. It's what set them apart. And for Abraham, it came after faith. They were separate. This is really important. In some ways, baptism is similar. Think about baptism. We as Baptists, we, we are different than a few traditions. For example, unlike the Roman Catholic Church and unlike many or most churches of Christ, we don't believe baptism is necessary for salvation because baptism is a work. That would be adding works to grace, and grace would no longer be grace, and justification would no longer be by faith alone. It would be by faith plus baptism. So don't we, we don't believe that as Baptists, but we also don't believe in baptizing infants, right? Because we believe that the Bible teaches that you have faith first, which infants can't have, and then they're baptized. And so the order matters. What we, our problem, we're not without problems as Baptists, as you probably know. Our problem is that we tend to baptize too early without wanting to, to make sure someone really understands what they're doing and making sure that to cultivate faith in children. We often baptize too young. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the testimony of someone. Well, yeah, I was baptized at, at five, six, seven, eight years old, but then 17, 18, 19, 20, I was genuinely converted, and so now I want to be baptized for real. That happens a lot, and maybe that's you. Baptism in the Bible comes after faith. And so maybe you were baptized as an infant or maybe you were baptized when you weren't truly a believer and you came to faith later. I would encourage you to consider being baptized after legitimate faith. If you got questions, love to talk. That was my story. I was baptized as an unbeliever, so I really wasn't baptized. I just got wet. Got saved later and said, you know what? I need to be baptized for real after genuine faith. Look at verse 11 again. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised, the purpose was to make him, notice that for a minute, the reason that he was counted righteous before he was circumcised. The Spirit tells us here's the purpose of that order. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised so the purpose here in God's plan was to make Abraham the father of all who have faith in Jesus 
believers, not just Jewish believers, Gentile believers and Jewish believers. So Gentile Christians are the children of Abraham. Gentile Christians are the holy nation, the kingdom of priests, the Israel of God. In the old covenant, circumcision divided. In the new covenant, faith in Jesus unites all of us. Ethnicity no longer matters. That's one of the main points of Romans. Ethnic background no longer matters. It's one of the main points of all of Paul's letters. That's why he's got that mantra. Remember 1 Corinthians 7, 19? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, ethnic background doesn't mean a thing either way. What matters, he says, is keeping the commandments of God. He says it two other times. In fact, keep your finger in Romans 4, but flip over to Galatians. You got Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians and Romans have a lot in common. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 6, notice the same mantra of the new creation. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Or he says it once again in chapter 6, verse 15 of Galatians. He really wants us to get this. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Verse 16, and as for all who walk by this rule, well, what's that rule? It's the rule of the new creation. It's the rule that circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter. It's the rule that ethnicity doesn't define the people of God anymore. As all for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them on the Israel of God. Now Israel is anyone who's in Christ. The people of God are defined around Jesus now. And anyone who finds themselves in Jesus, Abraham is now our father. That's what it means to be Jewish now is to trust in Jesus, right? Go back to Romans. That's what we saw in the end of Romans chapter 2, verse 28. No one is a Jew merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew's one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter. So if you trusted in Jesus Christ, you are a child of Abraham. Romans 2, you're Jewish. We'll see why that's good news here shortly. You've been, if you've trusted in Jesus, you've been circumcised spiritually. You are a child of Abraham. You know the children's song, Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them. So are you if you're in Christ. That's really the theme song of Romans 4. One people of God, Abraham, is the father of us all. That's the first point. Now let's notice Abraham, the heir of the world. Look at verse 13, Romans 4, 13. Y'all tracking with me? We're just getting deeper. Y'all buckle up. Here we go. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, this is a fascinating verse. Abraham, remember Genesis, we read some of them. Abraham was promised Canaan. Abraham was promised the promised land in Genesis. But here, the spirit through Paul says Abraham was promised the world. There was a different word for land. He could have used that word. He uses the word cosmos. 
meaning worlds. It's not the land, it's the world. He says Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the whole world. This helps us understand how the Old Testament points forward to the New Testament through something called typology. God in his wisdom had these certain types that he put in the Old Testament that point forward. Maybe you've never heard that language, but you know what I'm talking about, especially you gospel project teachers because every other week is typology. So something in the Old Testament that points forward. So we'll learn in Romans 5, Adam was a type of the one to come, the last Adam who would undo the problems that the first Adam brought or various persons or events or institutions. So you have the Exodus, God freed his people from Egypt, which pointed forward to the greater delivery that Jesus would free us from, not Egypt, not Babylon, not Rome, but Satan, sin, and death. Or even we saw in circumcision, physical circumcision was a type that pointed forward to circumcision of the hearts. Or the priests pointed forward to the great high priest or the sacrificial system pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the temple, the place where God dwelt, pointed forward ultimately to Jesus then to church, and then ultimately the whole world will be a temple. So these types that God has put in Scripture, here we learn that the promised land was a type that pointed forward ultimately to the whole worlds, the new heavens and the new earth. It's an important theme. In many ways, the whole Bible can be structured around this theme. Creation to new creation. The story of the Bible begins with creation, the Garden of Eden. You have this first human couple called to work and keep the garden to expand the garden into the inhospitable places until the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, but it didn't go well, right? They sin, they're kicked out, they're exiled, they're guarded from that special place. Then God calls Abraham, and through Abraham and his family, he makes the promises about the land, the promised land. Through Abraham, God is undoing the sin of Adam. He's recapturing and advancing what was lost in Eden. And here's why I think Paul will say Abraham was promised the world because he promised him the land in the Old Testament. He kept those promises. Let me just read a few passages that don't get a lot of airtime. Genesis 15, verse 18. Put these on the screen for you. Notice what he was promised. It's important language. He's promised on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, we're gonna do a little bit of Bible work here, so hang tight. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites. That's what he's promised. Now, here's what Joshua says. Moving down the story, Genesis, now in Joshua, the end of Joshua, 21. God makes promises. He keeps promises. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. He gave it to them, and they took possession of it. And they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Here's what Nehemiah says, Nehemiah chapter 9. It says that God made a covenant with Abraham to get, quote, to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, and Girgashite. And you've kept your promise, for you are righteous. He kept his promises. Here's how 2 Chronicles 9, 26 
describes King Solomon. He ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistine and to the border of Egypt. There it is. That's what he was promised. Euphrates to Egypt. So God kept his promises to Abraham, but not fully. It pointed forward to something even greater than, than that little narrow strip of real estate in the Middle East. It pointed beyond itself. It was a type. In fact, Hebrews tells us that. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Looked beyond where he was to something that yet had been fulfilled. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Looking for home. He wasn't home even when he was there. Verse 15, if they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, er, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So Abraham's land promise pointed beyond itself ultimately to the new heavens and the new earth. Abraham receives these promises, though, thinking about the storyline, but what happens? They come in, they're exiled again. We've got Eden all over again. They're kicked out. Israel's kicked out, exiled, kicked out of the lands. And Isaiah makes promises that God's going to come back. And he's going to restore his people. He's going to bring his kingdom. And when he does, Isaiah 65, verse 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Heaven and earth aren't two separate places. There was no one word in Hebrew that captured what he was trying to say. The universe, the worlds. Isaiah is saying there will be a whole new world. Many, many prophets speak of the same, a whole new world. Psalm 72 speaks of the coming king the coming Davidic king, and he says this about that coming king. His rule would not merely be over Canaan. It's universalized. It says, may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to not Egypt, but to the ends of the earth. This king would have the whole world to rule over. May desert tribes bow down before him, even his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This coming king that would undo the sin of Adam would rule over the whole world, not just Canaan. A little bit later in Psalm 72, we read this, verse 17. May his name, this coming Messiah, endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. that sound familiar? It's Genesis 12. Jesus enters the scene. 
this king that we've been waiting for. And he says in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Believers will inherit the earth. It's exactly what Romans 4.13 says, isn't it? Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world. Later on in Matthew, Jesus says that in the renewal of all things, Matthew 19.28 is this word, palin genesia. It's really two words. Palin means again. What do you think genesia means? Genesia, Genesis. In the again, Genesis. In the re generation. ESV says in the new worlds. Jesus speaks of the renewal of all things. The second Genesis. Second Peter. Jesus, Peter says according to his promise we're waiting in new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're talking about Eden 2.0. Abraham and his offspring. That's us. That's all believers. Abraham and his heirs would inherit the world's in fact, this word for heir only occurs twice in Romans. Right here in Romans 4.13, Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world. Then it happens again in Romans 8. Flip over there with me. Only two uses. Romans 4 and Romans 8, because the two ideas are connected. Romans 8.17. If we're children, we're heirs. There it is. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. But let's keep reading for context. What are we talking about being heirs of? For, the, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Heirs of the world, what is he talking about? He's talking about this world freed from sin. The land promises and the prophets are being spiritually fulfilled now in the church, being in Christ has replaced being in the land, but that's not the ultimate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment is the whole new world. God's international people, they'll be physically fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, quoting Isaiah 65. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So the land pointed forward to the whole world. We, as Abraham's offspring, will be heirs of the world. Why is this important? Many reasons. Let me just mention two. One, how we approach God's world. And two, how we envision our future as saints. First, how we approach God's world. God's plan is not just 
to save souls. Salvation is a reclamation project. He's reclaiming what was messed up in the Garden of Eden. It's a restoration project. We are being restored to what we're supposed to be. We're being renewed in the image of God. God will restore the world. Salvation is not liberation from the world. It's liberation of the world, according to Romans chapter 8. God cares about his creation. He says it's good. He says it's more than that. He says it's very good. So we're created in his image to have dominion over the earth, to bring this world to its full potential, to rule over it on God's behalf, to be good stewards of the earth's resources. This world will be our home forever. Purged by fire and freed from the fall, but it'll be this world, restored, renewed. A lot of implications you can work out from there. The second thing, though, is how we envision our future. Our future is earthy. It's a new heavens and a new earth. I think all too often we think about heaven, we just think about disembodied bliss. We think about fat babies and floaty things. Heaven will be earthy. We will be here. We will be working. We'll be ruling and reigning with the Lord. Heaven and earth will be one again. And so as Christians, we've got to keep resurrection hope central. Our ultimate hope is resurrection. He will redeem our bodies and he will redeem this world. So God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. He will keep his promises to his people about a land to live in, but it's going to be actually far more than they were bargaining for. The land was a type pointed forward to the world. One Old Testament scholar uses the illustration of a, of a horse and a car to help us understand it. So there's a man, he's, you know, late, late 19th century, and he promises five-year-old daughter, you know what, baby girl, when you turn 18, I'm going to get you a horse and a buggy. And she's like, great, sounds great, can't wait. Time passes. Meanwhile, Henry Ford's been at work. She turns 18, and now there's the Model T, and it's affordable. And so rather than a horse and buggy, this father gives her daughter a Model T car. Same with the land. The promises had expanded over time. The land promise pointed back to Eden, and it pointed forward to the new world, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. And that will be our future because we've trusted in Christ and thereby become the offspring of Abraham. And how? How do we inherit it again? Is it by working? Is it by pulling up our moral bootstraps? How will we inherit the earth? Well, by faith. Look again at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be Heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. This promise didn't come through law. This promise came through faith. Law and faith are two different paths. One is characterized by doing. You better do it. The other is characterized by believing. If the inheritance is only for those who keep the law, it's pointless. Throw the whole thing out. Why? None of us keep it. To say you will inherit the promise if you obey the law makes the promise void and empty. Flip back over to Galatians with me. Told you we were doing some Bible work. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, chapter 3. This is exactly what he says over here as well. Chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for 
the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Just like law and faith are two different tracks, so are law and promise. Two different tracks, two different ways to approach God. Look at chapter 3, verse 18, Galatians. If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The law says, you shall. Promise, God says, I will. Promise demands your trust. Law demands your obedience. According to Galatians 3, your perfect obedience. It's not those who keep the law who inherit. It's those of faith. Heirs by faith in Jesus Christ. We earn nothing. We trust the one who earned it all. That's why Romans 8, 17 says we're fellow heirs with Christ, co-heirs with him. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 16 says everything was made through him and for him. You know what that means, friends? That means everything is ours. Heirs of the world, not because of us, but because of him. We will inherit the world because we're the offspring of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's again how Galatians 3, 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We only inherit because we belong to him. And because we belong to him, we will inherit it all, the world. Then look at Romans 4, 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Here we learn two purposes about the law of Moses. One, it brings wrath. Two, it exposes sin. Again, this is not what Paul's Jewish friends believed about the law. They thought the law was the path to life, the path to salvation. Paul's at odds with that. They believed that it was the path to life. Paul says it brings wrath. Why does it bring wrath? Well, because we don't keep it. We break the law and God responds in wrath. So the law brings wrath. It's not the law's fault, it's our fault. Second, the law exposes our sin. It defines sin for us where there is there no law there is no transgression so it shows us specifically how we fall short we've seen that in Romans through the law comes the knowledge of sin we'll see it in chapter 7 if it had not been for the law would not have known what sin was the law shows us we don't line up we think we're fine by ourselves the law comes in and asks us have you ever put anything before the Lord first commandment second commandment have you ever lied have you ever dishonored your parents have you ever wanted something too much? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law brings wrath. The law shows us our sin. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says the law is a ministry of death. It's a ministry of condemnation. Again, it's not the problem of the law. It's our problem. All who try to keep the law are under a curse. Because it's written, curse to everyone who does not keep everything in this book, the need of humanity is not law. Parents, the need, fundamental need of your kids is not law. It's gospel. Fundamental need of humanity is not advice. It's news. It's something outside of us. And it's not any news. It's good news. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that though we are required to be righteous, none of us are, God sent his son to grant us that righteousness and forgive us of our sins. We need gospel, not law. It's the only hope we have. And we receive it as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. The law brings wrath. The law exposes sin. The law divides Jews and Gentiles. Faith in Jesus Christ receives a righteousness that is not our own. Faith in Jesus Christ unites us all 
in the Messiah. In a world longing for belonging, when we believe in Jesus, we belong to this worldwide family of Abraham, heirs according to promise. God in grace promised Abraham as many descendants as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And you and I are here, sins forgiven, spirit-empowered, guaranteed to be raised from the dead and to live with the Lord, reign with him on a new world forever because of the resurrection of Jesus where we will sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. For you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth.